Welcome to The Brew Files from Experimental Brewing, our quick hit series where we focus on fundamental aspects of brewing, including styles, techniques, and recipes. More brew, more flavor, more stories, less time, less ukulele. On this episode, it's summer. You want and need beverages for all of those summer cookouts you're holding, or maybe just a cool, quenching beverage to get you through another overheated day. But you or your guests aren't always in the mood for a beer. So in the spirit of inclusivity, I'm talking with Kylie Gwynn of the Cascade Brewer Society to figure out how to make a session mead that you can have on keg in two weeks and isn't dull. So sit back, we're all about to become junior Vikings. But first, a message from our sponsors. Do you own a copy of John Palmer's How to Brew? If so, you know it's one of those truly indispensable resources for brewers. Well, it's time to replace that old dog-eared copy, because our friends at Brewers Publications have just published the fourth edition of How to Brew, and it's a totally new book. The new How to Brew clocks in at 600 pages, and every chapter has been updated and expanded, and there are five totally new chapters to boot. So grab your copy at your preferred beer book vendor, or buy it from the Brewers Association store if you want to get the book and support craft breweries at the same time. More info at BrewersPublications.com. Family-owned Atlantic Brew Supply is the biggest homebrew shop in the Southeast. No gimmicks, no multinational corporate overlords, and no BS. Unique ingredients from local suppliers, including malt from neighboring artisan malt house Epiphany Craft Malts and award-winning recipe kits, including the Toll, Raleigh Brewing Company's GABF-winning Imperial Oatmeal Stout, Plus, we've got pro-level equipment and the best-in-cask supply equipment from sister companies ABS Commercial and Cask Supply. Malts, extracts, and more, all available by the ounce, an on-site calculator to help you craft your best brew, same-day order processing, and guaranteed two-day shipping for East Coast customers. Get 15% off your first order when you use the coupon code BREWFILES at checkout at Atlantic Brew Supply. The American Homebrewers Association, a community of more than 45,000 individuals who share a common passion, beer. Since 1978, the HA has promoted and advanced the most delicious hobby in the world, providing brewing resources, supporting homebrewer-friendly legislation, offering exclusive member deals at breweries and homebrew shops, and hosting one-of-a-kind events like HomebrewCon and the National Homebrew Competition. Join your beer-loving peers at homebrewersassociation.org. Well, welcome back, and thank you for listening to our sponsors. Remember, your sponsors make this show possible. So when you interact with them, tell them that you found them on Experimental Brewing, The Brew Files, just so they know their money is going to good purposes, or at least purposes of keeping me busy. Now, we've been talking about session beverages for a good long while, and obviously, you know, talking about session beers, because that's one of my favorite things. But did you know there's a world of session mead? Yeah, I'm used to thinking of mead as sort of that big Viking beverage that's designed to plow your skull in like somebody has a hammer. But turns out it doesn't have to be that way. And I have on the line right now, special guest, a friend of, well, at least one of the part of the podcast. Kylie, why don't you introduce yourself to everybody? 
hi, my name's Kylie Gwynn. I'm uh, in Eugene and uh, know Denny from a long history of Cascade Brewers Society, where I am now the uh, first lady helping run the club. <laughs> is that actually a formal title or is it just it one is. of your... yes, I'm on the executive committee as the uh, the first lady. Well, there you go. And how did you get into, well, actually, first, let's start. How did you get into good beverages? You know, I grew up in Oregon, so good beverages is just kind of a thing here. Um, my 21st birthday, I went out to Steelhead Brewery and bought myself a nice growler of IPA and went home. So um, it's kind of always just been part of my, my drinking life, I guess. I think you're part of that generation now where you just grew up with craft beer being a thing. Yeah. For both Denny and I, we when we first started walking this planet, Denny sometime about the time the crust was cooling, it was assumed that beer meant, you know, pale, fizzy, yellow stuff. And, you know, all these newfangled craft beer things were something new and scary. But so you, you got yourself a, a growler of steelhead on your 21st birthday. Do you remember what it was? Um, It was their Hoposaurus Rex IPA. Yeah. And then the next day I went and took home a, another growler, a Ruby from McMinimins. So, <laughs> so you got, you got started right away and, and rolling fast because, cause of course you never had a, a beer before you turned 21 because that would be illegal. Never. Never. How did you progress from enjoying good beer to deciding that, you know, what I got to do is I got to go make my own beverages? So about a decade ago, my husband and I took our honeymoon to Hawaii and uh, tried Maui's Coconut Porter and just loved it. It was great. It was just fantastic. And we came home and wanted it, and it wasn't yet distributed in Oregon. And uh, we had a couple of friends who were homebrewers that made, you know, okay beer. And I thought, well, if those guys can do it, we can do it. And uh, we grabbed a small little pot and started making extract batches. And how long did you do extract? say about two years before we bought a, a bigger all grain system and then and never stopped since so going going strong for a decade now yeah and we've kind of it's overtaken our garage we have a, a 30 gallon setup and then we recently got a, a mash and boil so we do a usually a five gallon and a 20 gallon batch at the same time for for good measure well you know of course because you have to have the five gallon batch while the 20 gallon batch is doing its thing exactly do you guys have different things that you brew or you are you pretty simpatico in terms of taste uh, we're a little both. I, uh, the older I get, the less I'm into big hoppy beers. I want to be able to taste some of that malt pearl before things. So I tend to brew, um, a little more Belgian, uh, a little more experimental. I work for a wonderful organic herb company. So I get lots of fun things to play with and do that on a regular basis. So those are usually the smaller batches that I kind of tinker around with. And we're also doing, um, just a lot of like going back to the basics on that system. So our, our plan this year is to do just Belgian singles and work our way through every level of the candy syrup just to get a feel for what that does and how that comes out differently in the same recipe. Excited to play with that. And that's the, the mash and boil from Brewer's Edge carried by our fine sponsor, Brewcraft USA. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Have to get the plug in. Absolutely. So now craft beer is one thing, but you know, where I think that craft beer has always kind of been omnipresent. I, I, I don't tend to think mead until at least relatively recently being sort of commercially available or viable. So what got you looking at mead? Um, you know, shortly after I started homebrewing, a friend of mine brought me a bottle of Tej and said, you know, this is a traditional Ethiopian honey wine. And I was like, well, that sounds fantastic. And, um, 
you know, as a homebrewer, of course, she had tinkered with the recipe a little bit. And I just, I loved it. And it totally shifted my perceptions for mead, kind of, as you were saying, from this thing that like hits you in the head, you have one glass and you're done, to something that can be enjoyed over the course of an evening and kind of really, you know, brought a new life and flavor into my my perspective. So um, and about the same time, I was introduced to Hummingbird Wholesale, which is a wonderful local distributor here, which carries a million times of Pacific Northwest honey. And I was like, well, let's let's start this. So, you know, we started playing with meadow foam and mint and hawthorn honey and all kinds of things that you can just get a huge variety of flavor from that you can't get from like a traditional store-bought mead. Not, have you ever gone to make your own Tej? I have. Yes. So I can't remember what is what the name of the leaves. It's usually spiced with a leaf, right? Like Gensho or something like that. That sounds correct. Um, I didn't write it down. I tend to play with it a little more on because again, herbs. We don't carry that one, but um, I really like to put Damiana and rose in it. And I've had a, I've had a fair number of tejas here in Los Angeles because we have a big Ethiopian community, and so you can go to the little restaurants and they all kind of have homebrewed uh, tej. Not that anybody's saying that's homebrewed. So we we get Tej as your exam as sort of your example. What is it that you like about those session meads, you know, as opposed to the bigger ones? I love that a session meat is more of a social beverage. Um, it allows you don't have to. It's not. It's kind of like the same thing of opening a bottle of beer versus opening a bottle of wine. I feel like it's more enjoyable. It will last longer. It's not that like rush to drink a twelve percent bottle of something before it all oxidizes. Um, and maybe that's because as a home brewer, I tend to bottle my full strength sack meads and keg my session meads. But I think they also just provide a lot more fun to play with in a, in a faster window. Right. And I was, I was going to say, I always kind of think of the session meads as it's more like, hey, you know, look, I'm having a bottle of pale ale versus I'm going to crack open. Yeah, that, that special barrel aged, you know, monstrosity that I need three friends sitting around a table and everybody going, oh, yeah, no, that's intense. Pretty much during the summer, we've always got one tap dedicated to a session meet and just keep it on because it's so nice and refreshing to just sit down with a lightly sweet something and just chill. So let's set the ground rules for your session meet. When you say, I'm going to have a session meet or I'm going to make a session meet, how big are we talking? So when making a session meet, I usually target something in the low 1060 range. Um, the one I brought to HumbrewCon actually ended up at 1065, so a little higher than what I usually work out for, but honey is a little hard to be precise with as you're you're mixing it in. No, nah, I was going to say, how much honey is that? So for us in Oregon, that ends up about being three quarts of honey and five gallons of water. When I go make a, a batch of mead, I'm thinking anywhere from 12 to uh, twelve to 18 pounds of honey in a, in a five-gallon batch. So like 12 to 18 pounds with three and a half to four gallons of water. Because I always think of like 12 pounds is about a gallon. Yeah. So you're talking, you said three uh, three quarts. So that's... You know, eight, eight pounds of honey in a five-gallon batch. Roughly eight pounds. Now that everybody's talking about, like, staggered nutrient additions, you know, people are learning you can turn big meads around faster. But how long how long does it usually take for you to get a mead, you know, from go to show? Following those kind of modern nutrient additions and, and proper babysitting of it, uh, it can be about the same as a nail. So two and a half, three weeks from, from go to in the keg and getting carbonated. Uh, yeah, since we've already referenced a couple of things and not really explained them very well, bad show host, bad show host. Why don't we just uh, take a step back and let's talk Kylie's process for making a session read. Where do, uh, where do we start? Um, so for us, it starts like anybody with water. Mm-hmm. Um, so we 
are lucky in Oregon to have pretty great water. We don't have to do a ton of work to it. So I'll bring the water up, get it warm enough to sort of dissolve the honey, put it in, get my initial gravity reading, turn around to the, the Tonsa calculator, get my nutrients in line, figure out if I'm going to need fermentation control. In the winter in our house, it stays about 65 in my laundry room. So I just keep it in there. In the summer, we do tend to temperature control a little more because we air condition a little warmer than that. So now do you have to uh, do you heat the water at all? Or do you just it's cold water and cold honey? I heat the water, but not the honey. Okay. And so what do you take the water to? Probably about 120. Okay, so 120, just enough to dissolve the honey and make it, you know, really loose, and then and then what? Just let it naturally cool down. Yes. So okay, no force chilling, and then we're into the carboy. So what? Just basically let it hang out in the carboy overnight. It doesn't usually take long to bring it down since it doesn't get up super hot, and the honey is usually room temp. So if I make it mid afternoon, I can usually pitch about bedtime. And then into a carboy, and then staggered nutrient additions. Yep. Now, which model do you subscribe to? I I, I think I learned the one uh, from Ken Schramm where it's like, okay, divide it up into eight doses and, and I had one of those doses every 12 hours for the first four days. I use the Tonsa 2.0 calculator. Okay. So I stick all my numbers in there and it tells me when and how much I need to add everything. So I made not a session mead, but a full sack mead last night. So I'll be adding nutrients today, tomorrow, and the next day, and then one at a week. Do you have a preferred... Nutrient? Um, I use Fermate O. Okay. I think that's what the Tonsa calculator recommends. You're saying Tonsa calculator? Yeah, T-O-N-S-A, Tonsa. Well, and we'll make sure to include a link to that in the show notes. And, of course, now we have yeast nutrient, but what about yeast? Yeast is a whole other ballgame. Yeast has a lot of potential. I think a lot of people tend to make mead with champagne yeast because that's how it's been done forever. But the first time I made a mead, we actually used the Irish ale yeast because I wanted some of those estery, fruity flavors to support that session mead. And I think that kind of is a way that you can bring more flavor into what people may think of as a lighter, you know, people say thing about pale it's a lighter flavor beer, but I think your yeast choice has a lot to do with the flavor of a session mead. So do you have particular favorites or do you always do it with beer yeast? I've used 71B before, mm-hmm. which is uh, the semi-dry. Um, I've also used EC1118 to get a really dry, crisp session mead. I try to kind of taste the honey and get a feel for the characters that it has and support it with the yeast choice. So if I've got a honey that's real spicy and kind of has that notes to it, then I may do that with the champagne yeast so that it's nice and dry and crisp and a little spicy on the end. But if you've got something that's a little more floral, then I may look for an ale yeast that would support that character better. And so you said you used Irish ale yeast. Do you use any others? Um, we've used a ton over the years. Um, but Irish ale yeast, 71B and EC11 are kind of my go-tos. The elderberry I made yesterday, uh, I had a long conversation with the local homebrew shop owner, and he talked me into QA23, which is used for Chardonnay. Okay, I don't think I've ever used that one. I hadn't either. He's like, I think it's going to be good. And I'm like, you know what? I'm willing to to give it a try. Let's see what happens. There's so much going on in that mead with all the other spices that I was like, let's let's give it a go. Um, I have also used RC212, which is a red wine yeast, for some of those bigger honeys to give more of that 
sort of red wine character when you're supporting some of those tannins and things that you'll get in some of the darker honeys. And it sounds like, at least in my mind, uh, to me, mead's always expensive because honey is expensive, right? At least for me. Uh, in the wonderland that is Oregon, I don't know. Maybe maybe you have cheap honey running down the, f- the fields. I mean, it feels like if you're going to take risks or do something new and experimental, it sounds like session mead's a perfect place to do it because you're risking less in terms of cost and in terms of ingredients. Absolutely. I totally agree. Let me ask about the beer yeast front. I've played around with fermenting ciders with beer yeast, and I've always been disappointed with the results, right? You know, I always think, oh, you know, I love Saison, so I'm going to go pitch a Saison yeast into, into my cider and see if I can get something interesting, get some of those funky, spicy flavors out of it. And I, and I never seem to, and, and, I, and I always suspect it's because the metabolic pathways aren't there. Do you find beyond just some sort of the, like the fruitiness that you get out of the um, Irish ale yeast that you, that you pick up those characters? Um, I've gotten some Belgian characters, but like you said, they're more estuary than phenolics. So I would guess that, like you're saying, the pathways aren't quite the same. I find more of when you play with some of those other yeasts that it is more of an aster character and less of a phenol character. Uh, interesting. So it's not that you're going to get the exact same thing. It's now you're going to get something that is maybe a little different because you don't have all the same metabolic pathways. Correct. So this is where you play. Yeah. And, you know, the sort of using, you know, yeast nutrients and, and some of those other things will help support some of those things, I think, more than they have in the past when we first started these kind of experiments in our place. But yeah, you'll get, a, would say, a parallel, but not exactly the same result. Bridging off of that and thinking about flavors, when you're when you're designing your meads, what are you what are you trying to do? What are you, what are you trying to or how do you design them? I should say, like, yeah, come up with a flavor idea and run with it. How's that happen for you? Kind of like you said, Oregon is great and we do have honey flowing off the hills. Um, so we get a lot of it to play with and tinker with. Um, and so for me, it's usually kind of tasting the honey and going from there. So would it be good with peaches? Would it be better with a spicy ginger note? Would it play? Is it perfect on its own with just a nice yeast that'll stall out and leave it kind of sweet? And so kind of just really... Um, for me, it starts with dipping that spoon in the jar of honey and figuring out what you're working with. Because even though uh, we have honey for days and days and days, you know, every jar or batch of blackberry honey you get from a different farm tastes different because of what else was around it. So for for me, it's all about starting with the honey and then tinkering from there if you want to. So make like poo and taste your honey. Exactly. It's your it's your main ingredient. It's just like brewing beer. If you start with a bad base malt or you don't understand the flavor of your base malt, you're not going to come out with a product that could be as wonderful as it might be. Oh, you know, I, t- I totally forgot. We didn't talk about fermentation. <laughs> How could we not talk about fermentation? We have to talk about fermentation real quick because we got our stacker nutrients. We got our yeast choices. And you said that you leave it in your mudroom at 65 during the winter uh, You and then you temperate it what, like a water bath or something during the summer? Um, we have either that, right? I have one going in a water bath right now, the one I made yesterday. But uh, if we have, we have a couple of fermentation chambers available. So it just depends on what we have going and how big the batches are and where we need to stick something else. So combination of the two, um, I'm working on keeping the one in the tempered water bath right now at about 70. Um, if I had it in a fridge, I'd keep it at about 68. Okay. And then how long do we let it go for? You said on some of them, you're just in standard ale time. So two to four weeks? Yeah. It's, uh, you know, like a standard ale, you kind of watch, watch fermentation, take some gravity readings and see when you're, when you're done. Packaging. You said you keg mostly. Yes. Sessions almost always kegs. So kegging, do you, do you normally serve them stilled or do you carbonate them? I carbonate them. That started with, uh, 
think the first carbonated session meat I had was from a company here that didn't last very long, but sort of after they disappeared from the market, Nectar Creek kind of popped up. And uh, if you're not familiar with them, they're uh, basically, they do mostly session meads. They're here in Oregon and they do all kinds of wonderful carbonated session meads and they can. So um, I don't have to worry about packaging session meat. If I want one, I can grab one of theirs. So we mostly keep it on draft and, and take uh, growlers and stuff to parties when we're headed out. How, how brisk are we going in terms of carbonation? I like a medium high. Okay, so you're not you're not aiming for champagne, you know, explosive. No, no, no. So somewhere just like a like a, almost like a maybe a Weiss beer, you know, like that Weizen carbonation. That's that's pretty much right in line. There we go. Okay, so we got a Belgian slash Weiss beer carbonation level, and then do you dedicate? kegs and equipment just to the mead no <laughs> um maybe in a perfect world if we were more organized i think we tend to keep the same tap just because that's easy but no we have a lot of kegs and a lot of equipment that end up all over the garage so we don't keep anything dedicated so we're not hearing any cries of honey where's my mead keg <laughs> no <laughs> okay so that gets us into the glass D- do you have a favorite mead glass i have a favorite mead glass have a favorite mead i have a favorite i have three favorite glasses so i think it depends on if i feel like i need a tall stem a medium stem or no stem for the day um but my my favorite glass shape is the tulip so i'm almost always drinking my session mead out of a tulip of some kind well that makes you very fancy mine is uh i i years ago i got a a pottery chalice from the uh saturday market in portland from two uh you know, hippie lesbian potters. And that's always followed me around as my mead chalice. Now let's go back to the honey. What are you looking for when you are looking for a honey? For session meads, I tend towards the lighter honeys. I don't look like, I don't know if anybody out there's ever had buckwheat, but it's a real funky honey. And I don't think it would make a very good session mead. No. And I think buckwheat honey is one of the ones along with heather honey that gave me that reputation of, oh, you have to let this age for years and years before it's drinkable. Right. I mean, some of my favorites are pretty easy to get most of the time. Wildflower always makes a great session. Clover makes a great session. Um, here in Oregon, we're lucky to have meadow foam, which is just a delicious, like really ugh, so good. Okay. So yeah, I didn't hear about meadow foam until I went up to conference the other week. I mean, you say meadow foam to me, and of course that just makes me think marshmallow. And I don't know if that's an associate, an appropriate association or if I'm just being insane. So can you explain meadow foam? So meadow foam is, um, the name comes from the, the flower itself, which in the Willamette Valley grows in these huge meadows that look like sea foam just rippling across the valley. So A, they're gorgeous. B, they are, um, they do have some of that kind of marshmallowy flavor. They're very, very light, very um, vanilla-y. And they're cool because meadow foam honey is kind of a, a secondary byproduct. They grow the seeds for cosmetic use. So not only is it a delicious plant for honey, but it has another use beyond that. So it's just, it's delicious. There's nothing I've ever had anything like it. Interesting. Now, of course, you're going to make me go figure out if I can source myself some meadow foam. <laughs> well, we're headed to a, an apiary on Sunday. So maybe if you're nice, I'll get you a jar. I can be very nice. <laughs> Unlike uh, unlike Denny, I can right. be very nice. I, w- I won't give it to Denny to give it to you. Uh, that's probably a good plan. I'd never see it. <laughs> it sounds like for these session meads that you're really looking for something that's relatively light, uh, but still flavorful. 
Yeah, you don't want any. So, do you ever do anything with any darker honeys with your session meats? Yeah, I mean, blackberry, at least in Oregon, is a darker honey. I think wildflower honeys are darker. Um, the blueberry honey I had for the session mead at conference was kind of a medium honey. But it's it's more of finding that, not necessarily color, but the flavor of the honey. Because there are some lighter honeys that can have a pretty heavy flavor mm-hmm. that you kind of want to stay, stay away from. Unless that's what you want in that. But I tend to really... Um, you know, most people have some sort of access to local honey. And I think that's that's your best first bet is trying to find a nice, fresh local honey that's going to be full of flavor and life. Down here in Southern California, we see a lot of, say, you know, orange blossom. Go figure. Yeah. And the, I think the real key is to go get outside the city limits and go find those little roadside stands. And we have a couple that that specialize in doing honey as well. The, the, the funny one I was just thinking about is the one I used in my uh, Saison guacamole that I don't think could get anywhere near a session made. It's an avocado honey. And it's dark and it tastes like molasses. Yeah, that would probably be a very awkward session meet. Well, you say awkward, I say challenging, or maybe it's just in its teenage phase. That's not going to be ready to go in two weeks. Beyond the honey, what else are you looking for? Like when you start to construct these ideas. Right. So most of the time, that's that's really kind of where the idea starts. And then thinking through, okay, so I've got the honey and I've got the yeast paired that I want to go with it. Is there anything else I want to put in there? For me, that can be anything from ginger to peaches to roses. Um, I just, like I said earlier, brewed a, an elderberry mead yesterday that had more things in it than I can count. Um, it had elderberries and orange peels, uh, allspice, cloves, vanilla. Um, so it's just kind of really making sure that the flavors as you're pulling them together are complementary. And I think the best way to do that, if you have never tinkered before and you don't want to waste $40 worth of honey is to make yourself a nice cup of tea. Put all those flavors together, get some hot water, put a tablespoon of honey in there and, and stir it up and just, just give it a taste. I, and I tend to cheat. I've, I've been known to uh, keg all my mead and then make flavored bottles. Yeah, that's a great way to do it too. I just keep a, keep a keg of straight mead, put flavors into growlers or bottles or something like that, and then you know flavored that little bit so that you can play with it or at the very least walk up to people and go, look, I've brought 20 meads. And they, they think you're really impressive. And really, it's like one batch. Yeah. I've, I, and I've done it both ways. We've sort of gotten, I don't know if I should admit to having a stockpile of mead, but to the point where it's not a big deal if I flavor a whole keg. Like there's other things, either beer-wise or mead-wise or commercial bottles that we have around that we can still look like we have an impressive treasure chest of mead without, you know, having to split it 20 ways. What has been your favorite flavor combination that you put together? My favorite is probably a carrot blossom ginger session mead. So like carrot blossom honey or actual carrot blossoms? Carrot blossom honey. Um, It's one of my favorites. I get it from a co-op I'm a part of here and it's just such a wonderful base. It's kind of like meadow foam light with a little more color. So it's got those same sort of notes of vanilla and sweetness and kind of toffee to it. And then when you kind of ferment that out and add in that ginger, it just comes together into like a nice ginger soda kick. It's ginger soda with adult attitude. Yes. Unlike, uh, and I've obviously never put that into competition because it does not meet guidelines for the harmonious marriage. It's definitely more uh, ginger than mead, but it's, it's awesome when it's 95 degrees outside. So ni- uh, nice and refreshing. Now, has there ever been a combination that you put together that that you were super stoked about? You're like, oh, yeah, this is going to be great. And then uh, you got it into the glass and we're like, nope. <laughs> I don't think 
combination ways. I think, like you said, uh, Hawthorne honey. I've done that before and been like, mm, well, would no, no, no. It it, it kind of tasted like yogurt when it was finished, and that was just not didn't work out very well. Yeah, uh, that, I'm yeah, I'm not down with the yogurt beverages. I know some people are, but yeah, not in my session made. <laughs> I think that brings us around to the to the question of the thing that session beer is always suffer from, or at least the perception wise is that, uh, it's session beer. This is going to be boring. It's going to be lifeless. It's going to be dull or lacking in body or, you know, any one of a number of other pejoratives that you can ascribe to the idea. What do you think are the keys to making a session mead that, that gets around that trap that, that defies people's expectations? Uh, I think it starts with, as I've mentioned a few times, having great honey. And so that, you know, there are a lot of honeys on the market that aren't real honey. So if you're not buying your honey from a farm, it's entirely possible that what you think you have as honey is 50 to 75% fructose corn syrup. And that's going to ferment out to be real plain and thin and not very exciting. So to make sure that you start with a great base, just like a beer, you, if you're making a low if you're making an English mild, you've got to have some great base malt or it's going to be flabby. And the same thing goes for honey. If you're not starting with a great quality honey, it's not going to be very great. And the thing you can do kind of to make sure kind of right out of the gate that it's going to be okay when it's done is to, to sample your must when you take your initial gravity reading. Is it thin and watery then? Does it not have a lot of flavor? If it's kind of thin and gross at that point, highly likely by the time you get to the end, it's going to be the same way. Fermentation doesn't magically fix uh, no, flaws. It's not going to fix a thin, a thin must. So you you know you can kind of step in at that point and say, oh boy, maybe I should put a little more honey in, or maybe I should think about adding an herbal character or some fruit or something. Um, but yeah, if you start off with bad honey and a bad initial must, you're kind of doomed from the beginning. So. Is there anything that a, a brewer can do if they end up with a, a session made that they feel is too thin once they actually get to the point where they're packaged? I mean, is it as simple as like, hey, add some honey to it, shake it up and keep it cold? Or are there other tricks? Um, that's, I think, the trick most people do. I know there are a lot of mead makers out there who kind of do arrest fermentation and back sweeten. And I've never played with sulfiding or any of that. Usually if I'm going to tinker with something on the other end, it might be a syrup that has honey and something else in it. So maybe I'll boil down some fruit with some honey and, and throw that in and keep it cold, you know, something like that. But again, I keg most of my session meat. So if I'm going to tinker with it, I'll do it and make, you know, keep it cold and go through it quickly. Back to your point about the honey. I think it's important that people know that if you go to honey.com, that's, you know, the national honey board of America, I think is who puts that on. And they actually have a, a honey locator that can help you find a, a neighborhood apiarist. Definitely, uh, definitely take advantage of that because I do really strongly think that honey is one of those things where you do benefit from using the unique local products that you can find. Absolutely, yeah. I will admit that uh, when I want to throw together a mead and I don't necessarily have honey on hand, you know, like I haven't gone to the Bennett Farms up in Pryor in recent times, uh, I will go to my local Trader Joe's and they have 10-pound cans of mesquite honey that seem to be pretty reliable. Yeah, and I think, you know, there are some brands out there like Trader Joe's and, and some of your natural whole food stores and things like that that will have reputable honey. Um, you know, Costco is a pretty good source for, for legit U.S. honey as well. 
and the reason to harp on the idea about uh, good U.S. honey is not just because, hey, you know, it's better to have the local product. There is a big concern with adulterated honey coming in from, say, China and India and Pakistan and some other countries where, yeah, you said, you know, added sugar or sugar syrups or they have toxins that are found in them that aren't legal here in the U.S., that sort of thing. Also, taint your brew real fast. In addition to the honey, kind of, you know, another great key, is, as we talked about, is carbonation. I think carbonation is essential for a session mead. It kind of helps lift the whole beverage up, clean them off the palate, and make them more refreshing than if they were just sort of a thinner, uncarbonated mead. Um, I think that helps a ton. And then, um, as we talked about earlier as well, yeast choice and making sure that you think about the profile that the yeast will or won't contribute to that final beverage. Do you ever worry about carbonation undercutting uh, whatever body it is that you have in the mead, or or is that not a concern for you? I don't think it's a concern with a session mead. I think um, I've never had a problem with it, at least. I don't notice it. Okay, fair enough. And then what about anything like a tannin or acid? Do you ever do you ever play with those adjustments, or do you depend upon what you're getting from both the honey and your fruits or other flavorings? I have never delved into that. Um, I haven't felt the need to. I've always been happy with what comes out of my fermenters taste-wise. And I'm usually looking to kind of play up whatever honey I'm using. So maybe if I was really serious about competitions and looking to kind of do some of those things, then I would. But for my personal drinking preference, I don't. Then let's talk uh, other flavorings because you talked about boiling some honey with fruit and you mentioned earlier uh, that you have access to great herbs through your job. Um, so what do you do normally with your herbs? Is it just like make a tisane or or do you do tinctures? or? Um, I'm mostly a, a tisane decoction fan. Um, tinctures tend to be a little more solventy and you have a little less control over the extraction of all of the constituents and herbs. So... Um, I'll use them if I'm after a specific flavor or trying to like really carefully dose. But if I'm um, using an herb I'm familiar with or I've played with in tea ratios ahead of time, I when I heat that water that we were talking about mixing the initial honey into, I'll actually bring that to a boil if I'm doing a decoction with some harder herbs or roots or bring it to a, a quick boil and then let everything steep and infuse for a half an hour. And then uh, once it's cooled down to about 120, mix in my honey. So you actually do the herbal infusion straight into the the strike water, effectively. I do, yeah. Interesting. Do you do you ever worry about going overboard in that initial dose, or do you tend to, or do you know your herb so well that you that you're not sweating it? Um, the first couple of times I was a little sweaty, but, uh, that's where, again, making that tea ahead of time. So knowing that if one teaspoon tastes like this in eight ounces, herbs scale for the most part, much more linear than hops do. So usually one teaspoon of hibiscus is going to give the same as one teaspoon in the three times the amount of water. So I always, if it's a herb I haven't played before, I will make tea with it a few times and kind of test out, okay, this is what it tastes like with this much honey, this is what it tastes like with this much herb, and kind of play with it a little bit first before I jump into a full batch. Um, But you can do the same thing on the other end, too. You can make uh, a strong tea and then do bench trials and figure out, is this a 1 to 5, a 1 to 10, a 1 to 20, and blend into specific bottles or your whole keg. Listening through what we've been talking about, it seems obvious to me that you are a a ginger fan. (laughs) Yes. Which I'm wholeheartedly on board for. I I love a good ginger flavored anything. Now, what is the most unusual 
or unexpected herb that you think that you've ever used that gave you something that made you go, oh, wow? Um, boy, that's a great question. I think as far as session meads are concerned, I think sage was one that I was a little skeptical about going into. I was like, this is going to be a little funky, but it was great. I loved the, um, again, going back to ginger, I love the spicy notes it had in there. So maybe that's just it. Maybe I just like my session meads spicy. The spicy and also a little bit of earthy too. Exactly. Yeah. But it was just a really nice, well-balanced, unexpected character that I wasn't expecting it to, to mesh nearly as well as it did. You know, that's something I actually, I don't think I've ever thought about, but yeah, like ginger and sage not only have those spicy notes, but they, they provide, well, for lack of a better way to put it, they, they provide the baseline. Right. So they give you that earth and funk. And mm-hmm. and maybe that, and maybe that's part of it. Maybe that's part of how you provide some more structure to the to the flavor of the session mead. Yeah, and actually, one more as I'm staring at my window at my lavender plant that I've done. Um, read the Scratch Brewing book. Mm-hmm. Uh, they use lavender stems, not lavender flowers. Okay. In the boil, and it actually imparts like a wild cherry flavor. I mean, as much as I love lavender, I'm I'm hesitant to use it. In much in brewing or in mead making, just because the line between nice lavender tone to I feel like I'm drinking soap is about a millimeter thick. It's it's probably thinner than that, to be honest. But um, that's what I was real skeptical the first time I did. It. I was like, this is not going to taste like cherries. This is going to be weird, and it has no what you would think of as lavender character if you use just the stems if you cut off the buds and use just the stems it's this really kind of nice earthy cherry flavor and i was i was so like i didn't believe them when i read the book so i literally did it with like second runnings off of a batch just to be like all right we're gonna do this i'm gonna prove you wrong exactly i was like this is not gonna come out cherry i was like this is cherry so i was very pleasantly surprised by that I think we should have a whole other discussion about herbs and spices and fun things that brewers and meat makers and cider makers and makers of fine beverages uh, can use. Uh, folks, if you're listening and you would be interested in hearing us talk about that, uh, reach out and let me know at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. We'll make sure we do that. But before we go, let's make sure that we, that we got everything reiterated here because it's just good structure. So the keys to making a good session mead, good honey. Clean water, follow you know kind of standard fermentation procedures with uh, nutrients, and we'll include the link to the ca- uh, calculator that you talked about earlier. Choose an appropriate yeast strain. You you rattled off uh, three. You've got your Irish ale for the ones that you want to keep some of the fruity notes to seventy one B and EC eleven eighteen. If I want something real dry, there we go. EC eleven uh, EC eleven one eighteen. There we go. Otherwise, ferment cool. Get it into the keg. You like brisk carbonation, but of course, everybody else should play around. Choose flavors appropriate by making a tea and tasting the combination of your spices and herbs, fruit flavors, whatever, in that tea along with the honey. Yeah. We got it? Got it. All right. Anything else that you want to leave uh, leave the listeners with before we uh, uh, go forth on this weekend? No, I think just the encouragement to get out there and, and give it a try. It's a fun beverage. And to me, I think, you know, and look, we spend so much time making beer. I I always tell people mead is kind of a cheater beverage. I, I used to make mead when I was, when I couldn't sleep in the middle of the night 
because it would, it would take me 45 minutes to make a batch of mead and I'd be able to go to sleep because I'd had enough physical activity to kind of wind down the brain. And so, yeah, I would highly encourage people, you know, give yourself another beverage to have on during the summer, you know, make a session mead, throw it in one of your kegs and have some fun because meat can be a really fun playground for a lot of different flavors other than just the honey and the yeast. Definitely. And session meat is not your, your old school meat beverage. There we go. It's not just Vikings anymore. Well, Kylie, thank you so much for joining me on the show. Uh, I'd love to have you back, and I think we should talk about making a spice and herb show. I, I would love that, Drew. Thank you, everyone, for joining us on another episode of The Brew Files. We hope that you enjoyed this look at Session Meads. There's a lot of power in just a little bit of honey. Go look at honey.com or your local farmer's market and find yourself some good honey and make a simple Session Mead. Eight pounds of honey and enough water to get to five gallons and... Well, you're set for some honey exploration without making you feel like you've gone full berserker. Tell us what sort of session meads you've done or are going to do and what flavors intrigue you. Do you have a great local honey variety that we haven't heard of? What is it? Let us know. Remember, if you have show ideas, styles, brewers, techniques, ingredients, etc., you can drop us a line at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. You can reach us at denny at experimentalbrew.com or drew at experimentalbrew.com. You can find us on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook, on Reddit, and just about every homeroom forum known. Don't forget you can support the podcast by leaving us a review in Apple Podcasts, click the Amazon, AHA, or BYO links on the website, and by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our channel because, which we're going to announce in our next episode. Until next time, remember, the brew is out there, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Brew Files.